Welcome to the Carry Podcast. This is your host, Lindsay Rowland. Today on our show, we have Hawaii Governor Candidate, Mr. Gary Corderori. Hello, sir. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well. Thank you. How are you? I'm so excited to have you here today. And just so our followers know, I graduated from HPU, I think it was in 2005. So <laughs> really excited to talk about Hawaii politics. Uh, lived it, loved it, and want to hear what's going on now. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, just your background in general, before we jump into the election? Of course. Um, <clears throat> well, my wife and I moved here in 1981. Uh, I lost a video here, but we moved here in 81. And, uh, you know, I'm 62 years old. We have two adult daughters, Rachel and Erica. And we have seven amazing grandchildren. Kim and I have been married 41 years. Uh, my background is in construction. I'm a general contractor. Uh, I've been doing that also for about 40, 40 years or so in different forms. But since 1995, Kingdom Builders in Hawaii, we do every form of construction, uh, you know, residential, commercial, nonprofit, schools, churches, the whole gamut. We do the entire thing. And, and uh, uh, so it's just exceedingly blessed. Love living in Hawaii. We've been here, like I said, for since 81. So this is our home. And, uh, you know, couldn't be happier to live in a state, the state of Aloha. Yeah, I'm curious though. What what initially brought you to Hawaii? You know, actually, we came on vacation. I know it sounds like a cliche. No, it happens uh, a lot though. I've seen it. I've seen it. Yes, here they still live here. They live in Kona. My wife's folks. Uh, we came on an extended vacation. We got married in '80, uh, but I was working construction all over the country doing military projects, and I was always gone. And so when we came here on vacation, I ended up bidding a job at Pearl Harbor and got it, and uh, we. Three months later, I went home and moved out. So, because when you're on Honolulu and on Oahu, you're only an hour away. So the first year of our marriage, I was gone 10 months, uh, not directly, but we would leave early in the morning Monday, get home late on Friday night, sleep on Saturday, fight on Sunday, and go again on Monday. And that wasn't working. So coming to Hawaii really was providential and for our marriage. Uh, and that, so we stayed. And Kim never, Kim never went back until, you know, sometime later. And uh, it's been fantastic. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people do that. They just never come back because, I mean, what a great place to live. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk to you about, so a big question always to all the candidates I talk to, so why did you decide to run for office? What what made you pull the plug? Why are you running for officer? Well, you know, this we're really, I'm really the run for office for the people's voice, to get the people's voice back so that the government would actually represent the people. Personally, the the decision to run for office really came in prayer. You know, I spent a lot of time with the Lord early in the morning and people started telling me for the last year and a half, you need to run. We've been a part of an organization, Aloha Freedom Coalition, where we led, led uh, uh, you know, f- a, a fight against the mandates and, and the executive orders. We've, we went through Waikiki for two years, standing for the public to have liberty, that people would have individual liberty and not be told by the government what should and shouldn't go into their should or shouldn't go into their bodies. So in that process, people began to say, hey, listen, you need to run. You need to run. And. And ultimately, it became clear to me that uh, that what I was experiencing in prayer was related to what was being stated by the fellow citizens and ultimately decided, yes, we will run. So uh, the decision to run is precipitated by bad government and bad policy and the strain and uh, of living in Hawaii. But ultimately, the run is a response in obedience to the king. So with that, I'm un- totally undeterred by the circumstances or what people say may or may not be appropriate or whether you are qualified or not. That's irrelevant to me. Mm-hmm. I'm totally clear in my mind and in my spirit about all that's not right and that why I should run. 
So that's what it's about. I absolutely love that. You just know that th- this is what is happening. Yes, yeah. I love it. Um, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about, because I was doing research on, talk to me a little bit about the Aloha Freedom Coalition, how it started in 2020 and what you guys did. I you know, saw a lot of the movement that you had. I'd love to hear more about that. Well, you know, it was really a response to, to Ige's uh, mandates. You know, I realized, everybody, I think everybody realized when COVID came into the market, it came into the public square, like, wow, this could be serious. But it wasn't long before you could discern, easily discern when in Hawaii, we started hearing things like uh, essential and non-essential. We, we started seeing the who's and we saw businesses that were allowed to remain, remain open, but churches had to shut down. You know, certain small business had to close, but Costco could stay open. You know, these kinds of inconsistencies were incongruent with the truth. And for me personally, it was like, this is not right. And we, you know, so this, this tyranny that we began to see as a government, people started experiencing losing their jobs, being separated from their families. So a few of us got together and said, what do we do? What should we do? How should we stand in, in the midst of this? And so we got together and we, we had a conversation. I've, I had this idea to formulate these, uh, these pillars in our community, you know, government, media, the church, and business. These are four pillars of almost all communities. And how will we stand with these pillars of our communities to create opportunities for liberty and for freedom that the government shouldn't impose on our civil and constitutional rights? So we stood, and then people just started coming out of the woodwork, realizing that there's thousands of people who feel like we feel who know something's not right. And then ultimately... Uh, it became really in the public sphere when we had a when we had a, a, an event at a park uh, in which the police came. There was probably five, seven hundred of us in the park and a hundred police officers with petty wagons show up, intimidating the people and arresting a couple of the people that were in our in, that were in attendance. And it became oh, wow. that, that, that and it was at Queen Kapiolani Park, which is kind of like, a, you know, in Hawaii, we have these we have uh, parks and 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 places where they're kind of sacred to the people of Hawaii. Don't, don't do these kinds of things in our land. And uh, so AFC was started. We, we developed a vision statement. We formalized the organization. But really, ultimately, even to this day, and AFC is still, still, uh, still functioning today and providing a great service to the community. I'm no longer a part of it because it's a nonpartisan uh, you know, non-political. Uh, I saw, I was going to ask you about that. That was going to be my next question. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, we made it very clear in the beginning that the only criteria for AFC was liberty. Mm-hmm. It, it's an invitation for anybody in our society to come into liberty and understand that you have rights and that we will stand with you and we will support the individual citizens right for self-government and not the imposition of government. So uh, it continues today. It's changed. It's, its vision, its vision has not changed, but its implementation of that vision has changed. Uh, and they're in the middle of that. So I'm super grateful for everything that's transpired over the last couple of years. And I fully support what they're doing today. Well, so your current governor, right, has served his full term out, right? It would have been eight years. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, so he's you know, no longer the incumbent. So this is not on my question sheet, but um, I like to go down a rabbit hole. So what? how do you feel about the incumbent? And how did you feel about, because from the mainland, and I know you understand that terminology because yeah. I live there, right? From the mainland, it looked like um, COVID was handled very well in Hawaii because with the travel restrictions and so many things, was that reality on the ground or was that just like the reality that the press was making to to allow? Because um, weren't on a one-time tourist being put like on COVID lockdown for days at a time before they could actually go into the resort or 
Yeah. You know, it's it, so there's the narrative that talks about what is well. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't, I can't think of a single person that I know that feels like Hawaii handled COVID well. That you know, that basically the governor, the lieutenant governor, all took their marching orders from CDC and the Department of Health here. Uh, that process uh, was revealed in people's lives through through the emergency orders. So the the government began to initiate initiate these emergency orders, a sixty day emergency order by the governor to constrain travel, access, uh, public policy, health policy, what you should and shouldn't do. And it, w- it got to the point where people could not go outside onto the beach. The police were arresting people on the beach. The six-foot six uh, um, distance separation, wearing masks. And then they enrolled the city, the mayors of the various islands, and, and they pretty much got, uh, you know, they aligned themselves with the same CDC narrative, and that was that was promoted by uh, the director of uh, health here through the health department. And so nobody would actually stand. None of none of our government officials actually took a look at other options, therapeutics or anything like that. They all just got in line, and it became more and more corrosive. And going to your question, people would come here; they would have to have a test, uh, you know, an op, uh, you know, an approved test before they traveled here. And if they got here and they didn't and they didn't have a local resident or a place to go, they would actually put them into a hotel. I thought so. They, they would put them into a hotel. They would lock them in the room, and they, wow. would bring, they would bring rooms. They would bring meals to the rooms and force them to pay for the hotel and for their meals. And they could not go out until a certain length of time. Uh, it, was more, it was more like the brown coats were in full bloom. Brown coats meaning, you know, a, kind of a Nazi control a mechanism and it was supported across the board i'm a by, german fail so i i know the brown coats i know what we're talking about <laughs> doubt. so you know uh public policy in hawaii was handled horrifically to be honest with you because they disregarded the rest of public health they took a hard stand a narrative on covid measures but they they ignored every other aspect of public health and that, in part, is the great failure of our administration. And the consequences of that will happen, will continue for decades. It's not going to go away. Uh, you know, so we, we had these lockdowns. We had, uh, uh, you know, I, we could go on for an hour talking about Yeah, what- I'm going to cut you off only because I want to talk about you. And I, you know, I, I like to talk, co- I mean, sometimes we're done talking about COVID, but I wanted to hear because you always heard on the news Hawaii was handled so well, but let's continue. Um, yeah. I want to talk about your policies. Talk to me about the super ferry. And um, we know goods in Hawaii are expensive. We know, you know, um, home ownership is hard. So what are ways that you, and you're a businessman, so what are ways that you can improve this as a candidate or will as when you, when you are elected? Yeah. So, you know, uh, it's not really that complex, although it's broad. Uh, the basic issue, the underlying issue of affordability in Hawaii is is related to bad policy in Hawaii. In Hawaii, you know, we have the highest tax state in the nation. We have the high, we have the worst business climate in the nation. Oh, I we didn't have know that one. Lowest proficiency rating for our students in the bottom five year over year for the educational piece. You have a one government, you have one, you know, the Democrats run everything. You have the governor who appoints everything in Hawaii, in the mainland, p- people actually elect officials into government positions in Hawaii. The governor nominates them across the board. It's staggering the amount of power the governor has. So all, all you put all those together into colander and what you end up with was a, 
was an invitation to corruption. And this corruption is in full bloom. It's now systemic in every aspect of our society. And it's undermining the hopes of people. And so it actually shows up in bad policy. So the idea of buying a home here, uh, it's a, so underlying that, it's an, it's an issue of uh, supply and demand, right? But you have government making policies restricting, restricting the possibility for additional uh, land to be developed for for, hope, for people to have, uh, you know, a place to live. You have bad Hawaiian homelands policy where the Hawaiian homes have been dedicated lands uh, by Congress, but people are on 20, 30, 40-year waiting lists to get on the land that's already theirs. And then it's offered to them as a lease. It's never, a, they never have a, a possibility to own this land. So there's no equity piece. It also, it also means that where do these people live? They're waiting for, they're waiting for their lands. So these kinds of policies are by DLNR. You, you have the highest tax. We have the highest tax uh, state in the nation. So we have a shrinking population. You have an ever-growing government administration. And so they're crushing the people by and trying to extract whatever little resources they have as a citizen to support government policy. So we have a shrinking population here, right? <clears throat> and that population base is supposed to support an ever-increasing government. So you just have to think about that. You have Jones Act here, and people don't really know about the Jones Act on the U.S. mainland, but it adds an additional 25% to everything that we buy here. Everything is imported here. Absolutely. Five to eight days of supply on Hawaii because we have no local industry. You mentioned the ferry earlier. We had the super ferrier, ferry early. It was, it was opposed by rental in, well, the rental car industry, the uh, uh, airline industry, and ultimately – it was undermined and failed. I, we're, I'm saying as governor, we need to bring back dairy, poultry, beef, produce. These industries, Hawaii used to be, Hawaii used to be an agricultural exporter. It was actually a, a powerhouse. It has no export now. Really? It, Zero? Not even sugar anymore? Always. Oh. No pineapple, no nothing. Hawaii's largest export, five of the top 10, the top, the top number one, uh, Wait, I want to guess. Give me a clue. Rat metal. Oh. Metal is our largest export. Okay. And third, uh, military jet engines and military airplane parts. And these are products that come to Hawaii. They're not generated in Hawaii. Right. To Hawaii, they're used up. And the top three are exports. Number five, beer cans, aluminum, scrap metal. Number four is shrimp. Number 10, scrap copper. All this paints a certain picture about the sense of no actual industry in Hawaii. So not only must we create industry, we must bring these industries back, but we must create a a nonprofit ferry to move these goods and services throughout the chain, throughout the Hawaiian islands. This way you create a market, you create a way to, to deliver these markets so that the local farmer can be profitable. At the end of the day, if you have regulations, fees, taxes, workman's comp, unemployment, liability insurance, all of these things are at the absolute cap in the nation. Those things need to be reduced. And this is all policy. This is how they choke and get funds from the people. This is what's crushing the people. So uh, it's a, when I said earlier, yeah, it's not that sophisticated. It's easy to identify, but it's so systemic and it's so broad in its implementation that the people can no longer afford to live here. 
Yeah. I mean, even when I was there, it was outrageously expensive. Um, moving to Washington, D.C., though, or living in California was equally as expensive. But I think Hawaii was a little bit above the the process. But I do want to talk to you about um, the homeless population. When I was there, it was huge in Honolulu, huge in Oahu, huge on Waikiki Beach. And I know at that time they were trying to move homeless um, or dis- I think they're called dislocated um, uh dislocated people at this point and I, I, I want to be very sensitive to the topic but um, what do you see with the homeless population like how can you help this because and a lot of them are I'm, you know I'm a veteran so a lot of them are veterans what are your thoughts on on this issue because I and I know I'm, I'm doing the talking but because it was such a huge and then when what people came to Waikiki was such an issue because they saw these things and I can only imagine that in the last 10 years it has gotten predominantly worse well, you know, that was uh, Governor Ige's mandate to to the Lieutenant Governor Green. His his job was to deal with homelessness in Hawaii. It's a miserable failure. Now, currently, Lindsay, the, uh, the, the population of the homeless, we have the highest per capita homeless population in the nation. So, and the, the issue has been that the way the government actually addresses the po- homeless population. Currently, they have no distinction They have no way to identify, and they do not identify the various groups of homelessness and why they're homeless. This is the key to bringing some help to the homeless and getting them back off the streets, is to understand who they are, how they got there, and a legitimate, tangible method to get them off the street back into either some kind of program, whether it's drug addiction or or, uh, mental illness. That's super common. But you have moved into housing units. So there's all kinds of, there's all types of vehicles to do this by, but they've pushed the nonprofit. The government has pushed the nonprofit out of this, out of that component completely. So how come, you know, how come there's so many vets on the street? So they need to be identified. So I'm saying, what I'm saying is, is the Department of Health, which has reduced the funding, believe it or not, and all this cash that has come into our state versus visa COVID policies, they've reduced the funding for homelessness. So there has to be, there has to be a way to identify these people, and there are ways. So I'm suggesting that we use the sheriff's department and we use uh, nonprofits so that we go and identify these people and get them into facilities that, first of all, evaluate them from a medical standpoint. Where exactly are they? There, I'm, I sat with people that are homeless in the park just the other day. I just went and I just sat down. Where'd you go? What location? Find out. What's going on with you? There was, there was four of them sitting there, four people. Yeah. She said, I know what it's like to get off homeless or to be not homeless. I don't want to be homeless. I know it's required. I cannot, I can get off. I don't have to be homeless. Another young man, she's counseling this guy right there. You can get Section 8 housing. I'll show you how. His request, I just want a job. I need transportation. I need a place to take a shower. Case I need- workers. I need case workers. They just need somebody to give them a help up. Other people, they need to be in a program, right? And then there's other people who want to be on the street. This is the most difficult one of all. So for that group, government services need to be restrained. They cannot just keep living off the street, off the government. They must get a job. I, I can tell you there's no other way to assist a person who is just living off of the state than to actually give them some kind of a merit piece where they can engage in serving their community. If we're going to give them goods and services, let them help serve the community in some fashion. And then finally, the, if, you've, if you've traveled to Europe or other countries, they have these hygiene centers. Why in Hawaii we don't have hygiene centers about every four or 500 feet? 
a legitimate hygiene center so that people don't have to pack all their stuff and carry all their junk with them everywhere they go. And we call it junk, right? It's their belongings. It's their life. It's their lives. And so it's what I'm saying is that there needs to be a, a thoughtful strategy from the Department of Health utilizing the resources that are available, which include and primarily the nonprofits in our state who want to help but are now restricted from doing so. So there is a method and there is a way to move, move these people off of the street, but you cannot leave, just painting them with one brush. That's what we do. And then finally, I, I know I said finally a moment ago, we currently have this influx of people getting a one-way ticket and a paper to access goods and services, social services. We see it. They're coming I was in. I going to ask you about that. I thought that was a myth. Are you telling me that that's true? Absolutely true. It is not a myth. I have heard that before. They arrive here with a one-way ticket. New York is sending them here right now, mm-hmm. and they have a they have a paper. This is where you go to get your goods and services. So this must stop. That that behavior, interstate behavior, must stop. All right. All right. I love that. Um, I do want to continue on with us because I think we have a lot more to talk about. Um, and over, you know, just so you know, I'm not restrained to 30 minutes. I have time if you want to go okay, over. Okay, great. I can boast about this all day. Um, this is important things. So yeah. let's talk about, all right, let's talk about, so I did some, I did research on all the candidates. So you have what, five in the um, primary? That's correct. And then there's four on the Democratic side. That's changing, but I believe four are currently, yes. Okay, so let's, I like to talk a little shit sometimes. So tell me, tell me, who is your biggest competitor? Let's do Republican side first and then Democratic side. Because I went through all your profiles and I have my own opinions too. So tell me what you think. (laughs) Well, uh, you know, I think that, you know, we've been meeting uh, on a couple of events where all the candidates have been in the same forum. They've, you know, they've basically lined up the chairs. They ask the candidates the same question. And people go down and they pass the mic. You may have seen some of that. For me personally, uh, the other candidates, uh, you have a kind of a broad range. You have a young man from Hilo. He has a military background. Uh, seems like a really nice guy. Thoughtful. Yeah, I saw that. You know, and I'm like. He's a nice guy. I don't know. I don't know if he has the energy or the horsepower to take on the Democrats. He's also uh, young, kind of young too, don't you think? Young, uh, and he has a background in, in uh, trying to support women-owned business and private uh, and minority-owned business. That's kind of been his thing, what he's been saying. This is who I am. This is what I've done. I really like him. He's a nice guy. Uh, I don't know that he has what it takes to actually take on the establishment. And maybe he's so young. I like him a lot. Uh, then there's another an L, a guy a bit older than myself. Uh, he has some, he has background, kind of a diverse background. Um, I, again, it seems like a nice enough guy. I don't know my experience of people and watching them interact with him. They, they, they kind of check out while he's talking. I don't know that he's clear about what he's going to do. He, he, he sees government as the solution. He sees working through existing government structures to bring solution and to bring responsibility. I don't see it that way. I think the existing government structure needs to be what we call who lead. Uh, there needs to be change in the structure, right? Wait, what needs- is hooli? Is that a, a Hawaiian term? It's a Hawaiian. You hooli it. You turn it upside down. Okay. So, right. hooli. How do you system. spell that? Just because I'm a journalism major. How do you spell that? H-U-L-I. Hooli the system. Hooli. It's a- okay. So, you kind of, like you kind of fool the system or you? You just turn it upside down. It actually it needs to be changed. It needs to be transformed. Oh, not just Not just around the edges, but it needs to be f- you know, flipped the way of corruption 
running government needs to be completely transformed. It can no longer exist in its current form to Huli it. So uh, another candidate, she's a councilwoman. Uh, she's a politician. She kind of has one foot in and she's very nice to everybody. She doesn't actually call anybody to account. You know, she's very, this is close and dear to my heart. I really feel your pain. You know, this is one of the main focuses of my administration, but it's the same kind of way of relating for everything. I feel like it's very like Hawaii passive. Yeah, very passive. But most of the candidates are very, and then there's BJ Penn. He's not passive. Uh, he, yeah. What is his deal? You know, he, obviously he has a fantastic following. He's an MMA fighter. Uh, it, people know him from that. Uh, they know the, the, the name from uh, actually from fishing from the pin reel. I don't know if you know anything about fishing, but the BJ pin name, mm-hmm. uh, his father had it. It was a, so corporately, you know, they have a name, but him personally, he's a fighter. Uh, he wants to fight. His campaign is let's go, let's fight. Uh, so that's been his, that's been his, his call. He's going to, he's going to hooli the system. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, there's some, some components that he has that's in his conversation that live in me. You know, that's why I stood with AFC that we, we will stand. I think the difference is, is I'm clear about what I'm standing for. And I'm also clear about how to implement a stand. And so how to govern differently and actually go after the departments that run our, that run, that make policy and run government. So I think the difference is that most of the other candidates don't think along those lines. They think about either just throwing the whole thing out, but don't know how, or they're going to get along. They're going to use the system. Uh, and, and I don't think that works. I think they're going to get, get consumed by the same system. And so that's just my overall uh, take of, of uh, so on the democratic side, Wait, wait, I want to go back. Okay, so let's go back. So, uh, all right, so because I feel comfortable asking you this. So how do you feel about being a Holly? Like, do you feel, because I, like, you know, they always. Yeah, so Holly. So, you know, most people are Holly here. I'm I'm a Holly because I've been here since 81, which means. I'm talking about the people that are voted in, though. Oh, okay. Uh, You know. More, get more clear, Lindsay. What are you saying? I'm not getting clear right question. No, so looking at the ticket, like you're a white man. Right. Okay. So, I mean, does that, and I I mean, you have my vote. If I was in Hawaii, I would vote for you. But I'm just asking you, like, do you think that that's going to be it? Because it, it is an time again, when you look at the record of voting. Yeah, you know, so, you know, it's everywhere. Emotional, you pull a lever because you're emotionally charged or you feel like that. I mean, we heard, we, I hear a lot of people say, you know, you can't win. You're a Howley, uh, Howley meaning a white person. But interestingly enough, my entire campaign team, they're all local. They're all, you know, they're all Samoan, Hawaiian. And so people are like, what? This doesn't make sense. We show up at an event and everybody on my team is not, not just not just lo- local, but they've been here for generations. And so it, it, it speaks loudly to who we are as a team and my heart for the people of Hawaii. I have a deep passion for uh, the Hawaiian culture and and for the people of Hawaii and this is why I'm running and they, and they get it so when we meet with people they go oh yeah he may have white skin but he shares the spirit of aloha and I understand the struggle that they're in and and uh, what's happened in Hawaii over the over the over the years has been a nightmare they they get treated like the American Indian they have the same way of being treated as the American Indian so. Do people like the Indian people? Of course they do. Do they know that they're stuck on a reservation getting jammed by the government? Yes, they do. This is exactly what's happened here. Well, and I worked a long time before I uh, started my own business. I worked with Native American or uh, New Americans on getting land back. 
And I'm okay. sure there's a lot of cases in Hawaii where you would, and now that Deb, Deb Holland is the interior director, um, yeah. there's a lot of hope for uh, native Hawaiians to get some, to get some of that land back. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the hope. And one of the people say, well, how come this has never happened? And the reason it's never happened in Hawaii is there's never been a governor who has said, we will change this. Nobody from the executive branch, from the head of the executive branch has ever stood for the people. They all acquiesce because they're a part of a political machine, a national democratic party. Listen, you asked earlier about Ige and like that. They're honestly, they're just puppets. Uh, they're, they're more like a potted plant. When you listen to Ige talk, somebody has, somebody has given him every talking point. There's no thoughtfulness in him. There's no passion for the people. There's no stand for the people. He just mimics what's being told to him. And it's a sad scenario that the people are being betrayed by their government because they're not representing the people's wishes. So uh, this is why we run. All right. Two more questions. Um, I want to talk about veterans and I want to talk about the drugs and why. So you okay. pick, where would you, you, where would you like to, which one would you like to talk about first? Uh, either or we can talk about drugs. Let's talk about veterans. So, okay. So, you have Schofield, right? You have, uh, I was commissioned at what's, what's the hospital up on the Hill? Tripler. Uh, yeah. I was commissioned at Tripler. So tell me about how, and then, so, oh, this is another question I was thinking about when I was like researching you is that, so do the veterans that live there, can they vote for you for governor or are they all absentee voting? Well, the majority of them are absentee. Okay. They register in Hawaii and that's what we're encouraging them to do. So if they're stationed here, they're still voting in their home state. Okay. Yeah. That's what I did when I was active. There's about 10,000 uh, military personnel here on Oahu that are registered to vote here. But the vast majority are, are from another state and they're registered in their state. And they don't actually think that, oh, uh, you know, why should I get involved in politics? I'm here for a rotation, right? I'm here for five years. I'm here for seven years. Some people get a, a longer tour, you know, a commission here. But the majority of them are young. Uh, you know, they're here. Uh, they don't see, they, they, they're not thinking far enough ahead uh, that their vote, they could re-register here locally and vote. <coughs> Excuse me. but the 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 uh, defense department the military piece in Hawaii is exceedingly important you know on our on our own team our our campaign manager he's a four year navy vet uh, he runs uh, the campaign here for us great guy uh, our campaign uh, uh, our messaging team uh, also has military background my personal campaign manager here is a thirty six year uh, army vet she ran comms in Afghanistan so. These are people, these are serious people who understand the military, but her locally, some of the things that the people don't realize is how the military supports local people in terms of their presence being here. There's, there's small towns on Oahu. You've been here, Wahiwa, Schofield. Uh, if, if the military, and they're always being challenged by- Molokai. Molokai. All of these- We're going to talk about Molokai at the end though. Yeah. Uh, you know, all of these communities without the military's- uh, uh, influx of resources they won't survive people don't realize that there's entire towns that depend on the military dollars that come here to support the the bases that are here Absolutely. These, these leases are coming up here in in 99 so i mean uh, in the next few years the military ground leases with the state of hawaii are are, are now becoming a part of the public conversation 
and how that's to be renegotiated. People need to be really clear that not only are we strategically located from, from, a whole, from a security piece, right? We're in the middle of the ocean. We're halfway between Asia and the U.S. mainland. We have great, you know, we have one of the greatest military Navy bases in the globe right here in Pearl Harbor. You have the, you have Hickam, you have the, all the branches of government here. You have the Marines in Kanyoe. So, uh, from a technology piece, from a strategic piece, from a resource piece, the military is vital in Hawaii. And, and I, I, I love the, I love the military. I love the people of the military and we'll, we just need to bring, we just have an honest conversation with the military's presence here in Hawaii. And once the people understand that, they're like, yeah, I didn't really realize just how important they are. Yeah, definitely for the economy, those small areas. And then one last thing about, let's talk about fentanyl. It's using the States. Is that, is that affecting you guys in Hawaii? Um, You know, obviously drugs are affecting everywhere in Hawaii. I mean, uh, you know, Hawaii even though we're in an island uh, on an island, there's there's still very little restraint uh, with regard to drug enforcement. I'm not aware of a massive fentanyl problem because you have it coming across the border, vis-a-vis you know individuals and truckers. We don't have that here as much. We, you know, uh, uh, you know, child smuggling and sex sex crimes that's big here. Uh, that and it gets a little bit more attention. But in Hawaii, there's a great deal of child trafficking that goes on here. I think last year there was 600 kids that went missing. That's a lot of people. Yeah. I got to stop off. Wait, you had 600 kids go missing last year in Hawaii? In Hawaii. So you have Asian people come in here. They park their boat offshore and these kids just disappear. Now, nobody knows where they go. Nobody seems to have it. These kids. Kids from the community. Community kids go missing. And you don't know where they went. You don't hear a lot about it. But child trafficking is big here. Therefore, drugs is big here. Organized crime is big here. So I don't know that we're certainly not exempt from fentanyl and dangerous drugs here. People are doing crazy things in Hawaii now. You know, we just saw five murders. We don't have these violent crimes in Hawaii. It's kind of like when it happens in Hawaii, it's like, what? In this last two weeks, there was five murders on Hawaii in Hawaii. Wait, where? Like Oahu area? Wahoo. Like Waikiki? Waikiki. Uh, there, was, there was five. There was a couple on the Big Island. There was one right in front of the police station. Two, three days ago, in front of the police station, a woman was murdered by a guy. There's, so one of the problems here we have in Hawaii is the attorney general is appointed by the governor. And the, and the, uh, uh, the prosecuting department doesn't prosecute crime here. So people are arrested. There was a man that was arrested for strike for hitting the police officer. He gets arrested. He goes in. He doesn't get prosecuted. He's released on bail. The next day, he murders a woman in front of the police station. Why was he released? So these are the kinds of these are current issues. So and you know the the uh, the homeless population. There's a lot of homeless people who are committing crimes now, and people are saying, "Where's the police?" Well, did you guys do a, um, a defund the police like movement? I don't remember Hawaii ever being involved in that. It was more like Chicago, Illinois, and like Detroit. Did you guys do that, or they didn't do that? But there was a case recently where there was a there was a young man who was shot in an altercation with the police. Uh, the, the 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 attorney general called for an investigation. They did an investigation. They found that there was no reason. Uh, 
to prosecute these police, right? So then the attorney general sets that aside. A grand jury was, was convened. The grand jury found no reason to prosecute. The attorney general comes out and says, I don't care what the grand jury says. We're going to prosecute these police. So there's a huge rift between the attorney general's department and the police department because the, there was a grand jury that said there's no grounds to indict. That's, so that's supposed to be the rule. The attorney general, for political reasons, say, uh, we're going to prosecute these guys anyway. So what did it happen vis-a-vis, like what you mentioned, defund the police? Not necessarily. But is there a rift between the Justice Department and the police department? There is absolutely a, a massive risk. Okay. Rift the, the prosecutors won't prosecute, and then the judges won't sentence. Yeah. So the judges are nominated by guess who? The governor. The governor, he, he nominates the attorney general, the judges, and the ethics commission. You just have to think about this. And the sheriff's department. So what you have is a recipe for corruption and following the party line. So what is the National Democratic Party line? It's what we have in Hawaii as a Democratic line. So there's no distinction when it comes to that. All right. Can I ask one more question? One more question. Yep. Because you're kind of interview. All right. So according to Google, right, like, so Hawaii gets about 30% Republican vote. Uh What's the deal? (laughs) Uh, I'm asking like how, so, okay. So it's like. Looking at like DC, right? Like DC is all Democratic. So I don't even vote here. So I was running for office before, but I decided not to run because Marcy Captor has been in office since I was born in Ohio District 7. Um, So I vote in DC, right? But it's always Democratic. And so in Hawaii, Hawaii gets 30% of Republican vote. So how are you you working every day to change that? Because that's like a huge number. Yeah, so that is the ongoing question. How do you that is against you? Right. So you know we've we've calculated what it takes to win in Hawaii. So one of the problems in Hawaii is nobody votes. Over fifty percent of the people in Hawaii do not vote. Oh, that's so frustrating. Frustrating, and the reason that they don't vote is their vote doesn't matter. The people's voice is is dismissed by the legislative branch. Right. Thank you. Why would I bother to vote? My vote doesn't matter. Yes, I don't. I don't matter. I don't matter. So we've been telling people they're not a vote, they're a person, and they're, they matter. So we're trying to get people out of the bleachers, back onto the field, get back engaged in, in their lives, take back their, their lives. So how do you win in Hawaii? We, we know that we need around 300,000 voters to, to vote for us in the general. Uh, there's 140, 150,000 Republicans that will, that will vote Republican. The, the largest voting block in Hawaii, uh, and people don't realize it, even though even though that the the makeup by party is seventy percent Democratic, Hawaii is really a conservative state. The people of Hawaii, they're a family oriented society, right? They're conservative in their values, but they've bought this mentality that only a Democrat cares about them. Okay, that's what I was going to say. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. but currently in Hawaii, there's so much discontent. That across the board, it is so blatantly, dis- there's so much uh, frustration in our society that we know for sure that there's a number of people who will vote based on policy. Then there's the faith vote. 
the faith vote is by far the largest voting block in Hawaii. It's like 250,000 faith voters. They haven't showed up for the last three elections. They just haven't voted. But over the last two years, with all things COVID and the government telling them they can't go to church, they have to wear a mask, their kids are in school being masked, their separation, all of these components, uh, we, we know that the faith vote is coming out. So we need, we need 50% of the faith vote. We need the Republicans to show up. And we need a small portion of those in the middle to say, you know what, we need change. So mathematically, it's, it's, not only, it's not only possible, but it's probable. But at the end of the day, Lindsay, I'm running because I know why I'm running. And so they're going to show. People will show up. Mm-hmm. And when people hear our message, the ratio is about 9 to 1, 10 to 1. Yep, I'm on. I'm in. I'm fully in. So the issue for us as a candidate is to get our message out there, to get name recognition out there, and to get, uh, to get the, the funding piece in place so that we can run hard. Uh, and when we do that, uh, November, on November 3rd, on November 2nd, we will stand on the podium and we will say, look what he has done. At the end of the day, he will get the glory and we will stand and we will bring, we will bring right government, righteous government back for the people so they can prosper and live in abundance. And that's the call. That was amazing. I, I stand with you. I would vote for you. That was absolutely amazing, sir. Wow. Um, Last can, thoughts, but I don't even think you can beat that last thought. That was so good. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's the truth. I'm just telling you, this is how it is. This is the no, you're very genuine. I mean, I interview a lot of people, right? So I'm kind of like a, a 10 years in the military, logistics officer, foreign officer. Like I can read bullshit, but this is very real and very yeah. genuine. And yeah. yeah. Well, you can tell your friends one thing you can do is you can go on our page, GaryQuarteryForGovernor.com right? And you can hit the donate button that you can support. You know, we, you know, in Hawaii, we have restrictions, you know, we, we, we can only take 30% of, of, uh, of a mainland donation. Uh, you know, so it's very interesting. Hey, to have a re- say that out because that's weird. Hawaii, the max gift to a Republican gubernatorial candidate, the max is 6,000 per person. In if you're donating as a, as a, uh, as a registered voter from another state, you can give 30% of that or the max gift of 1800 to a gubernatorial candidate in Hawaii. So that's a direct donation. Now we don't have a PAC, uh, PAC money. There's no, you know, there's no coordinating between a campaign and a PAC. I don't, we haven't spent any time even trying to go there, but if, if a citizen in, uh, in, in Ohio or Virginia or in DC, Ohio, if they want, if you want to spread the word, you can go on our website and you can hit the donate. You want to know how you can help us? You may not live here, but this is an investment into the future for the people. And if we don't have change, there is no, there, there's no future for Hawaii. I can tell you, Hawaii is being bought and sold at an incredible rate. Ellison bought, bought Lanai 97%. He owns the entire island. The state of Hawaii signed off, signed off on the deal through the PUC. Uh, so literally there's no life. He owns everything. Zuckerberg is buying Kauai at a, at a staggering rate. Oprah, so pretty too. Yeah. Oprah Winfrey is buying Maui. And so how are they buying it? They're displacing the local people through regulation, through DLNR, moving things around on what's what you can buy, what you can't buy. And the people are suffering. The people in Hawaii need the people in the U S mainland to stand for the Liberty for the people the people here are getting crushed by its government. 
And the mainland people think that Hawaii is kumbaya. It is not. We're the last bastion of tyranny. People, our kids are still wearing masks in school. Think about that. They're still doing social distancing and still wearing masks that are mandated by the Department of Education. With the full support of the governor, the health department, the board of education. So people think that, you know, tourism, it has to, you know, everything uh, is attached to bad policy and we need change. So help us get the word out. Help us. Help me. All right, Sarah, that was absolutely amazing. Thank you for coming on this podcast and talking real with me. My pleasure. Anytime. All right. All right. Aloha. All right. Bye-bye.